0: So thankful for the time of worship and the music this morning. Um, But boy, that last song was good. It was good. If you can say it as well with my soul, say amen. 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 Praise the Lord. I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Our text today is verse 5 through verse 24. I'll read the scripture here in just a moment. And a message entitled, Warning, Perilous Times Are Ahead. We live in a fallen world, a sin-fallen world that is currently groaning and crying out for renewal. That's what the scripture says. We see it all around us with the different things that are taking place. In 2021, there are currently ongoing wars and conflicts in three dozen countries in the world. Most are in the Middle East, Northwest Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, and the ongoing drug war in Mexico. And there are three major wars that have experienced more than 10,000 deaths so far, 12 wars that have experienced somewhere between 1,000 and 10,000 deaths, and then dozens of conflicts that have less fatalities and casualties than that. There have been just this year... 100 significant earthquakes around the world, some registering as high as 7.7 on the Richter scale. Uh, 584,000 people are currently experiencing famine conditions in Ethiopia and Madagascar and South Sudan and Yemen. 41 million people live in nations that are on the verge of famine. World hunger has been on the rise for the past five years again. And then uh, so far through this pandemic that we have experienced, some 219 million people worldwide have been affected since the pandemic started. On top of that, there's much persecution of Christians around the world. It's estimated that throughout the history of the church, there have been 70 million uh, Christians martyred, uh, half of those in the 20th century alone. In the 21st century, it's estimated that somewhere between hundred and 160,000 Christians have been killed for their faith. Uh, that amounts to 322 every single month, 214 churches destroyed every single month, and the violence because of persecution against Christianity is extensive. But I want you to know that almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus prophesied about the things to come. And that's what we're going to read In Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 5, as some were talking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, he said, these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. Teacher, they asked him, so when will these things happen and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Then he said, watch out that you're not deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. Indeed, it is necessary that these things take place first, but the end won't come right away. Then he told them, nation will be raised up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places. And there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time, for I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will even be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, They will kill some of you. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but not a hair of your head will be lost. By your endurance, gain your lives. Now verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those inside the city must leave it, and those who are in the country must not enter it. Because there are days of vengeance to fulfill all the things that are written. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will be killed by the sword and be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Father, we thank you today for your word we thank you for this warning from Jesus that perilous times are ahead. And Father, while this is a complex passage of scripture to us, it is absolutely clear to you. So I pray now by the teaching of your Holy Spirit that you would give us clarity of understanding so that we might be prepared and so that we might be good witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen. You might note here that this section of Scripture parallels the Olivet Discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus taught what we can anticipate in the world leading up to his return. And this is a section of Scripture that actually began back in Luke chapter 19 and verse 45. So what we have is a long eschatological discourse involving the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and then leading up to the end of the age. And Jesus teaches in order to clarify several misconceptions. Now, I think it's very interesting how many people are drawn in by these types of ideas and the thinking about what is going to come in the end. Did you know that in the modern era, there have been more than 250 post-apocalyptic films that have been made, movies that have been made. And in the last couple of decades, the genre has been on a rapid rise. People are very interested in these things and they want to know what they can expect. There was a song that was written many years ago for an Alfred Hitchcock movie by Jay Livingston and Ray Evans and it was sung by Doris Day, Que Sera Sera, which is Italian, of course, in its roots. And the lyrics go, in part, When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? And here's what she said to me. Que Sarah, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que Sarah, what will be, will be. So there are things that we know, but there are things that we are uncertain about. Jeff Thomas said, we have hunches and fears, but we cannot know there are secret things that belong to God. The future is known to God, and we're mighty glad of that. Of course, the general sweep of our lives is known to all mankind, the different stages most of us will pass through with the various responsibilities and joys and trials that will finally terminate in our deaths, presumably in old age. And he says the pattern is basically what happens to us all. But in the meantime we need to be prepared and we need to heed the warning that Jesus has given us about these perilous times that are ahead. He references, first of all, what was going to happen to the temple. Some of the disciples evidently were pretty impressed with the temple and they're admiring it and they're looking at it and they're talking about its grandeur and its beauty and they're admiring its construction and they're wondering what's going to happen. And Jesus tells them that a time is coming when not one stone would be left on another. And what he said raised some questions undoubtedly. And Jesus begins to speak of wars and conflicts. He talks about earthquakes and famine, plagues, and persecution. You know what that sounds a whole lot like to me? That sounds like chaos to me. When I think about what chaos is, chaos is a state of confusion and disorder. And chaos is what it feels like we are currently living in, but evidently there is more to come. And in this prophecy, as is often the case in scripture, there's a present future sense of fulfillment. In other words, Jesus was teaching about the present sense of fulfillment because of what was going to come in the very near future as it related to the temple and then Jerusalem as a whole. But then he's pushing much further out into the future about the time that precedes his return, and what we might expect throughout the age of the church, and then what we would expect as the end of the age approaches. And I think it refers here to the situation which would confront the disciples before the fall of Jerusalem, and then it refers to the situation that will confront the world before the return of Jesus. And what it seems like is chaos in the world, is actually something that God knows well. And while it seems like there's chaos in the world in the meantime, in our lives, we can know that these things are to be expected. And not only are they to be expected, you can be settled and certain if your faith and your hope is in God. You don't have to be caught up in anxiety. You don't have to be weighed down by worry. You don't have to carry the burden of it all. Jesus has it. And if your faith and your focus is on him, then he will carry you through it all. I want you to note, first of all, that God will not be surprised by perilous times. God will not be surprised by perilous times. Now, you know, nothing surprises God. There's never a moment when God says, oh, I didn't think of that. Oh, I was surprised by that. Oh, that, that caught me off guard. And the word surprise means an unexpected or astonishing event, a fact or a thing that we were not anticipating. So think about the kind of words that we use to describe our surprise. We say, well, I was shocked by that. Or that was really a a revelation to me. Or I had a wake-up call somewhere along the way. Or this is a, a bombshell that was dropped. Now, that bombshell deal has been so overused and overworked in the last few years that if everything's a bombshell, nothing's a bombshell, but you still get the idea of the types of words that we use. And we use these words to describe our feelings of what happens when we're not expecting something. I'm surprised all the time. Now, it's difficult to shock me. I am occasionally still shocked, but I'm surprised all the time. And there's things that I was not anticipating uh, that come to pass. But the knowledge of God, on the other hand, is complete. So when we say God is omniscient, it means that God has total knowledge about everything that there is to know. Everything that there is to know, God knows it. And the foreknowledge of God is absolute. The foreknowledge of God in the scripture carries with it the idea of prognosis, of knowing reality and events before they actually occur. The foreknowledge of God is also based in his good pleasure to carry out his will. So the foreknowledge of God tells us that as God sovereignly works his providential plan out, everything that God decrees and everything that God intends and everything that God wills always comes to pass. And it always will. And God is not surprised by perilous times. Listen to the prophecy in Isaiah 46 and verse 9 and 10. Remember what happened long ago, for I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. This is the word from God. His plan will take place and he will complete all Of his will. Now, specifically back to this passage of scripture in verse 5, they were admiring how the temple was adorned and the beautiful stones and the gifts that had been dedicated to God. After all, the temple in Jerusalem was considered one of the greatest wonders of the Roman world. At this point, it had been under reconstruction for some 46 years. It would not be completed until 63 A.D. And if you do the math, from 63 A.D. to 70 A.D., when the destruction of Jerusalem would come and the destruction of the temple, it would only be completed for about seven years before it all came down. And the temple had this spectacular location. It was perched up on Mount Moriah, and they said from a distance that... It was so glistening and so magnificent that if you look from a distance to the temple, it looked like a mountain of gold that was sitting there at Mount Moriah. And the size of the foundation stones, get this, were as big as train boxcars. Just one stone. Jesus said in verse 6, These things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. Can you imagine how shocking it must have been in that moment? that They're looking at the beauty of it, and uh, the thing is getting close to actually being complete in the reconstruction. And Jesus says, there's going to be nothing left. Can you imagine what that must have done to those who were listening? And again, there's a present-future aspect to the prophecy. Titus conquered Jerusalem for the Romans. And although he ordered the temple to be preserved, it was gutted by a fire that was set by one of his soldiers and the whole city and the temple was then ordered to be raised to the ground. Jesus was speaking of that because that was near, relatively speaking. And then Jesus was speaking of the future that is still to come. His disciples, when they heard this, they wanted to know when these things were going to happen. And what the signs would be that these things were going to take place. And Jesus says something very important in verse 8. He says, watch out that you're not deceived. Did you know it's easy to be deceived? Good people can be deceived. Good people can be confused. And Jesus is warning us as it relates to these issues, to the matters at hand. Don't be deceived. And then he begins to speak, of the things that might bring deception. He says there's going to be false teachers. In other words, people are going to claim that they are Jesus or that the time is near, according to verse 8. Now, I understand this seems somewhat absurd to us, but in recent years, there have been at least seven men who have claimed to be Jesus Christ. That's been true historically, actually, but in recent years, it seems to have, have accelerated And you say, well, these people, they're just off. And certainly nobody believes them. Certainly nobody follows them. Some of them have tens of thousands of people following them and adhering to whatever it is that they're teaching. I read about the Norwegian photographer Jonas Bendixson who traveled the world actually photographing some of these people and kind of chronicling their uh, their teaching And he found these people in England, Brazil, Russia, South Africa, Zambia, Japan, the the Philippines, and Australia. So it's real. And what does Jesus say about that? Don't follow them. You need to be warned. Now, closer to home, there are also people who might teach false things about Jesus and yet not claim to be Jesus himself. And we have to be aware of those. We're warned of the savage wolves that might come in and destroy the church and God's people, or attempt to at least. And we need to be careful not to follow those things that are false. Jesus indicates there will be wars in verse 9 and 10, wars and rebellions. And, and he says, don't be alarmed. Nation's going to rise against nation. Kingdom's going to rise against kingdom. Just hold steady. There are going to be catastrophes according to verse 11. He speaks of violent earthquakes and famines and plagues. Did you know that currently, worldwide, there are at least 82 million people who have been forced from their homes because of various chaos in the world? And by definition, 26 million of those people are refugees who have actually had to flee their homeland to seek some type of safe harbor. There are at least eight known humanitarian crises in the world today. And in Syria, for example, because of civil war, there've been something like six million refugees that have been displaced in the country. In Yemen, you also have a civil war that's damaged food systems and infrastructure and the economy. It's a public health disaster that affects up to five million people in that country. You have in the Congo as many as 20 million people who are in need of humanitarian assistance and there's an ongoing conflict over land and natural resources and ethnic disputes. And get this, one out of 95 people on the planet have fled their home as a result of conflict, violence, and human rights violations. That's one out of every 95 people in the 7 billion plus people who inhabit the planet. But here's what Jesus said. It's necessary that these things take place. He also says there's going to be cosmic signs. This is curious because in verse 11, he says, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. Literally, we might translate that as there will be things of terror. He doesn't elaborate specifically on what those things are. But I think the idea that he's pointing out is that there are going to be some supernatural stuff that you can't just explain away. There are going to be some things that are going to be, wow, what was that? And people are going to be amazed because of the supernatural effect of what they're going to witness. A long time ago, J.C. Ryle wrote in his commentary on Luke a reference to a man by the name of Bishop Pierce who wrote about Josephus. Now, you might remember Josephus was the a Jewish historian. He was not a believer. Uh, he had no reason to authenticate the Gospels or the New Testament account, but much of, of what he wrote and much of what he recorded, in fact, did just that. And here's what Pierce had to say about Josephus. He said, Josephus has given us a very particular account of the prodigies of this kind, which preceded the destruction of Jerusalem. So here's the setup. Pierce is saying, The words of Jesus here in verse 11 about these terrifying sights and these great signs from heaven, Josephus wrote about those very things happening, building up to what happened in Jerusalem. He says, he speaks of a flaming sword seen over the city and of a comet which appeared for 12 months He mentions a light which for half an hour shone so bright in the night between the temple and the altar that it seemed as if it was midday. He takes notice also of what eyewitnesses told him, that chariots and armed troops were seen fighting in the sky on certain days. And then he adds that on the day of Pentecost, when the priest entered into the inner temple, they heard a great noise and a voice like a multitude crying out, let us leave here. And the substance of this account was confirmed and also given by Tacitus, the Roman historian. And there seems no reason to be a doubt about these reports of what they saw. And Jesus tells us that there are going to be some things coming. They're they're, they're supernatural. You you can't just explain them away. You can't just say uh, it, it was something that was normal. It's going to be something that's going to be cosmic and overwhelming when you see it. Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse 8, all of these events, they're the beginning of labor pains. Now, that imagery is pretty powerful because we all know what happens when the baby is born. But Jesus says there's some things that lead up to that baby being born, and it's a process. And he's saying before that baby is born, there are going to be some labor pains. They're to be expected. And he says that's what's taking place in these events that are to come. And the warning of Jesus, because he knows that God will not be surprised by perilous times. The warning of Jesus is, watch out so that you're not deceived. Do not live in fear, live in faith. Because the God that we follow, the God that we believe in, the God of the Bible, the God of the ages, will not be surprised by perilous times. And then second, God encourages his people to be faithful in perilous times. Now, as followers of Jesus, we should expect persecution. Now, Can you imagine, first of all, Jesus says to them, that temple that you're looking at there that's so magnificent, so beautiful, you're so in awe of it, that thing's going to be flattened. He said, these are the things that are going to happen. But for you, they're going to lay their hands on you, and they're going to persecute you. And they're going to hand you over to the synagogues and the prisons And you're going to be brought before kings and governors because of my name. And he tells them that they are to expect persecution at the hands of the synagogues that ironically should have been a place of safety for them. This was the place of religion after all. This was the place where the people had been blessed by the word of God and by the law and by the promise of the Messiah. And Jesus said it's there that you're going to experience persecution to come. Now, again, we have this overlay of present-future in the application of the Scripture. He's speaking of what was going to come very soon, but then he's also speaking of the persecution that would build throughout the ages and intensify at the end of the age. I don't know if you've heard of the organization Open Doors USA. It's similar to the Voice of the Martyrs. The Voice of the Martyrs uh, more well-known. Open Doors doing probably a little bit more research. They, they're similar parallel organizations trying to highlight persecution in the church around the world today, to draw the church in to pray and to support persecuted believers in different places around the world. And I read this in, in one of their publications, and I want to share this with you. A man in North uh, Korean prison camp is shaken awake after being beaten unconscious, and the beatings begin again. A woman in Nigeria runs for her life. She escaped Boko Haram, who kidnapped her. She is pregnant, and when she returns home, her community will reject her and her baby. A group of children are laughing and talking as they come uh, to their church's sanctuary after eating together, and instantly many of them are killed by a bomb blast. It's Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka. These people don't live in the same region or even on the same continent, but they share an important characteristic. They are all Christians, and they all suffer because of their faith. And while Christian persecution takes many forms, it is defined as any hostility experienced as a result of identification with Jesus Christ. 340 million people, Christians, are estimated to live in places in the world where they experience a high level of persecution and discrimination because of their faith. 4,761 Christians were killed uh, for their faith in the last year. 4,488 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. 4,277 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. This is the reality of what it means To follow Jesus. So what Jesus is setting forth for us here is that the Christian faith is not a faith of convenience. The Christian faith is not about a consumer mindset. God is not a product that we consume. He is Lord to be served and glorified. And when we serve Jesus Christ in the world, it requires a wholehearted commitment from us. It requires a level of discipleship that is far beyond taking the easy path. Because it's a full-on life commitment that could, in fact, bring us real-time persecution in our lives. Jesus said in Matthew 5 and verse 11 and following, Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you followers of Jesus should also expect betrayal. Jesus uses some interesting words by way of illustration in verse 16 and 17. He's talking about parents and brothers and relatives and and friends. And he says, they're going to kill some of you. That's what Jesus said. And why is he making the point here? This is echoed in Matthew chapter 10 also, where he speaks not of bringing peace, but a sword, and the point that he's making is there is a line that divides and cuts even in families between those who come and follow Jesus and those who reject Jesus, and that line is very defined, and what Jesus is saying to us is that we must count the cost Because there may be a high cost, even among our own family. Now, some of you might have experienced that. Probably in our context, it's more of a marginalization, maybe ridicule, maybe words that have been spoken to you that are unkind and unhelpful. Maybe someone has spoken angrily to you. But listen, there are people around the world who are coming out of particular religious backgrounds in particular, who if they believe in jesus and profess to their family that they do it can cost them their lives and yet when they count the cost they're still willing to believe notice what happens here in verse 13 jesus says all this persecution it's going to give you an opportunity to bear witness So followers of Jesus will boldly bear witness. And the word witness here is the same word from which we get our word martyr. That is not by accident. It's because of the level of discipleship that we're being called to. And this is the discipleship that Jesus calls us to when he says, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. What is Jesus saying? There's a high cost to discipleship. Now, there's a much higher reward, but there's a high cost. And you need to understand what it is that you're getting into. And too often, Christians are, are presented with, or, or people, I should say, are presented with uh, a different brand of the gospel. And they think that their life is going to get easier. And, and they think that it's just going to be a, a smooth path. From now to eternity. And we know that's not the truth. We know there's going to be hardship. Why? Because we live in a sin fallen world. Because we battle with the world and the flesh and the devil. And all these things come against us to make it very difficult in our faith. But yet, God is faithful to us, and we have the opportunity to bear witness through it all. You remember persecution in the early church dispersed people, and as a result, the gospel was spread. Now, that's not true everywhere in the world today. There are some places where the persecution has made the spread of the gospel incredibly difficult. But I can tell you there are also some places in the world, because of persecution, the church is growing exponentially. Like like beyond what you could even imagine in the context that we live in. And as people are dispersed and times are hard, they're being faithful with the gospel. And God is being glorified and people are being saved. I think about Acts chapter 3 where... Peter delivered the second sermon and after he healed the uh, lame beggar at the gate of the temple. You remember that man was lame from birth? Uh, it had been a situation that had been developing for quite some time. And when he told him to, to rise up and walk, this man that's been lame for birth, he, he rises up and he walks. Not only is he walking. He's bouncing around and he's joyful and he's happy and, and he's excited about what's happening to him. And you would think that the religious people might have been kind of excited about what happened to the man. But that wasn't the case. They weren't happy at all. And they realized they had to do something. And it says, while the disciples were speaking to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them, and they arrested Peter and John for disturbing the peace. And specifically, Peter and John were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So here are the rulers. They think that they've gotten rid of Jesus at this point. Peter and John are speaking to people and the lame man rises up and he's he's bouncing around because he's been healed. This is a man that many people would have seen at that temple day in and day out, year in and year out. And all of a sudden, he's whole and he's healed. And they don't like it. And here they think they've gotten rid of Jesus. And what are they doing? They're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And the scripture says that there were thousands who heard the message and believed. They brought Peter and John before them and asked, By what power or in what name have you done this? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, answered, By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. And then he said in verse 12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So here's our assignment. Our assignment is to give witness, to bear witness to the crucified, risen, and reigning Lord Jesus. Doesn't matter what the context is, that's our assignment. And when we bear witness to the crucified, risen, and reigning Lord Jesus, you know what's going to happen inevitably? There are going to be people that are going to be saved. They're going to believe. Their lives are going to be transformed. They're going to be reconciled to God. Their families are going to be healed as they believe. And we have the responsibility to bear witness to to him. So let me ask you this question. Will you boldly bear witness to Jesus, not just when it's easy, but when you're marginalized, when you're questioned, when you're persecuted, even when your life is at stake? The key to say yes to this is Is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is indicating. You're going to have the words that you need to say. He's going to help you. To have a knowledge of God's word so that you'll have something to say in the moment. And when you faithfully bear witness, the promise here is that as followers of Jesus, we will faithfully endure. Verse 19, by your endurance, gain your lives. The word for endurance here means strong endurance. That's important because it's not passive waiting. It's not sitting on your hands. This is is a strong endurance. This is the kind of endurance that James was talking about in James chapter 1 when he said, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, when you experience various trials. Hold up here for a moment. Consider it great joy? What? That's what he said. Don't bemoan it, don't feel sorry for yourself. Don't look for a way out of it. Obviously, we don't create it and we don't put ourselves in situations to intentionally cause it. But Jesus said, it's going to happen. And James said, when it happens, consider it a great joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So for our faith to be shown as genuine, we need to be tested. We need to be tested under fire. And he says, blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So not only will we be blessed with the gift of salvation and the very presence of God himself. But what we will be blessed with is the crown of life. When we've been faithful and when we've endured testing and suffering. And God promises to care for his people. He says in verse 18, not a hair of your head. Will be lost. Maybe somewhere along the way you've heard the phrase uh, perseverance of the saints. It's probably more accurately stated preservation of the saints, meaning that all who are born again in Christ will persevere to the end and God will keep by his own power all who believe forever. Or let me say it to you another way nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that not a blessed thought that nothing in this world can separate you? Not even death itself can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's the hope that we have. Jesus turns then his attention in verses 20 to 24, again, on the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And in fact, Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem in 70 AD and they laid siege to it. Many Christians in Jerusalem evidently remembered what Jesus said and they fled across the Jordan River and a few Christians perished in the fall of Jerusalem. But in the Roman conquest of the city, it is said that one million plus Jews perished, killed. Almost 100,000 of them were taken captive. And when the Romans were done, they say that there was not a single Jew that was left alive alive in the city. And for many years, a Jew could not enter into the city except on the anniversary of the destruction of the city in order to mourn it. That is a harsh scene. But now let's fast forward and let's think for a moment about the church age, which will eventually come to an end, and there will be a moment in the future when Jesus Christ will set his foot down on the Mount of Olives. It was prophesied of in Zechariah 14 and verse 4. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mount moving north and half moving south. He is our hope. Persecution is not ultimately the focus of this passage. The signs of the end of the age are not ultimately the focus of this passage. The chaos in the world is not ultimately the focus of this passage. Let me tell you what the focus of this passage is. The focus of this passage is Jesus Christ exalted. That's the focus. And when Jesus Christ is exalted in your life and he is lifted up, then you can be faithful in perilous times because you know that God has it under control. And you know that he's already won the victory through the cross. And what we're seeing now is only an unfolding of what God has already promised and what God has secured. And we get to be blessed by it. And we get to live as his church. Folks, how could we live in a going through the motions version of Christianity? How how could we just be satisfied with this consumer Christianity of the age that is not characterized by commitment? It's not characterized by surrender. It's not characterized by sacrifice. How could we be satisfied with that when we see Jesus high and lifted up and we hear his word and we understand God's plan for our lives? So I say to you today in closing, heed the warning and get ready because Perilous times are ahead. It's my understanding that that in the arena of public preparedness, early warning systems are the key. They represent the set of capacities needed to generate and disseminate timely and meaningful warning information that enables individuals and communities and organizations to prepare and act appropriately and in sufficient time in order to reduce harm Or loss. And I got good news for you today. God's given us an early warning system. He's told us what we can expect. And He says, Trust in me. Trust in me. Father, we thank you today for your word. Thank you for this teaching from Jesus, which so clearly helps us understand what has taken place in the past and what we should anticipate in the future. God, you are faithful, and we thank you that you are our Father. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ, and God, you uh, help us in the midst of the fearful things that we see in the news, and the divided nation that we live in, and the confusion that exists about so many things, and you remind us that we have hope that we have a promise. We have certainty about the future of our faith is in you. So I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ, some who may be weighed down by that worry, might be a little bit frightened by the chaos. I pray they'd anchor down once again in Christ and recognize that there's no reason to feel that way. They can be strong and sure in their faith. God, maybe there's somebody here or maybe somebody will listen to this message later on that doesn't yet know Jesus Christ, not received the gift of the gospel, have not been forgiven and saved. I pray that they would take that step of faith and come and follow Jesus, turning from their sins and turning to the Savior and embracing all that it means to be a disciple of the King. So God, we give this time of close and invitation over to you in response. We ask that you would work in it in Jesus' name. Amen.